Hi, Cinephile fans. This is John Roca. This week on The Cinephiles, Steve Morris and I kick off our patriotic month of July by tackling this massive 1972 musical about the signing of the Declaration of Independence titled 1776. Part one is this week, and the film tells it's a musical retelling of the American Revolution's political struggle in the Continental Congress to declare independence. It's directed by Peter H. Hunt, and it's written by Peter Stone, based on the book he created for the 1969 Broadway musical of the same name. The song score was composed by Sherman Edwards, and the film stars William Daniels as John Adams, Howard De Silva as Ben Franklin, Ken Howard as Thomas Jefferson, and a very young and beautiful Blythe Danner as Martha Jefferson. Throughout the movie, we see what the senators in the Continental Congress, or the representatives of the Continental Congress for their 13 colonies, had to overcome, confront, and make pacts with that maybe went against their morals and against their point of view in order to make this country happen and to sign the Declaration of Independence. Along the way, there's some great songs, there's some fun dance sequences, there's some lighthearted moments. But the film doesn't shy away from showing you some of the dark elements of how the country was created. And for that, I think it's a film that's still revered to this day. It has gone from video cassette to laser disc to DVD to Blu-ray to 4K Blu-ray. Certainly that means there's a public and an appetite for this movie. If you haven't seen 1776, do yourself a favor, watch it. Then come back and listen to part one of the cinephile's take on 1776. I say vote yes, so. vote yes, so. vote for independence. So I'll open up a window. I say vote yes, Stand vote for independence. Will someone shut that man up? Never, never. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on the Outlaw Nation channel, which is my channel, my YouTube channel, and uh, voiceover artist as well. Uh, and excited and excited, excited to talk about uh, this film today as a massive lover of musicals and as a massive lover of history. This has been a musical that has been in my life since I was 20 years old or just a little bit before uh, and have revered for so many reasons and still do now. It's so funny because this is a film, you know, this is one of the weird advantages of the top 10 show is that mm. I get to know about a whole bunch of your opinions that you don't get to know about mine, you know, because I've been listening to the show for years. So I knew that this was a big one for you. And yeah. I'm going to answer the question that I normally ask you, which is how did I come to this film? I thought I had seen it. Right. I have not. And we're talking about 1776. 1776. Skip yes. the title of this particular. Sorry, yeah. I, I buried the lead as I <laughs> so frequently <right>. do. <laughs> yes, the, it's 1776, the musical from 1972, um, starring William Daniels. And I, because I had images in my head of certain scenes, and what I think it is is that I had seen clips, you know, or mm. a song here or a song there when I was right. like 11 years old. And but when we sat down, when Karen and I sat down to watch it a few nights ago, I went, no. I've never seen this movie. <laughs> so this was happened. all new to me. And yeah. 
there's going to be a lot of stuff to talk about about all of it. John, how did you first come to this film? I I truly believe that I saw this film some afternoon on one of the television stations I was watching at the time when I think I was 18 or 19 years old, maybe at my house at the time going to community college uh, before I joined the military. And uh, I just happened to watch it. And it put the, it might have been early days of TCM or AMC. It might have been AMC actually before AMC had commercials, before AMC became like this uh, uh, original programming place. Way back when, they actually just showed movies back to back to back. And it might have been when I was uh, 19, 18, 19 years old, watching it some afternoon and stumbling upon it on AMC and just being absolutely transfixed by it. And I remember like uh, looking up the guide later so I could record it the next time it showed on my VHS. So I would have it on that. And I just, I remember it put the hook in me so well because it isn't a hold your hand kumbaya musical about the birth of this country or the Declaration of Independence. It is at times a very brutal, honestly raw uh, uh, depiction of what this debate might have been like in the Continental Congress as a new country is born in rebellion from the mother stem, I think is what Ben Franklin calls it uh, in this way. And it's, it's, it's lay, uh, laden with incredible music, incredible songs, fantastic lyrics, uh, and some great performances from some actors who I'd only occasionally had known about before I watched the movie and then saw them later on in other things uh, occasionally and still discover them when I'm watching old uh, black and white films or, or, or sure. uh, random color films in the 70s and 80s. This is a lot of character and TV actors and theater actors that have been in a lot of stuff. And one of the reasons this is not a star movie, yeah. because this is mostly the Broadway cast, with only one notable exception. Right. Um, here, here's one thing I'll say. that, that We did, a, just recently, we recorded another film, which I know is going to be released after this. I'm not okay. quite sure when. And it was a film that you had never seen. Mm-hmm. And what we kind of talked about was that my guess is that 18-year-old John Roca would have loved that film. But then... Then an older John Roca seeing it for the first time much later, different reaction. Mm. I am certain that if I had seen this when I was in high school, I would have loved it. Ah. Same, say, same as you. I love musicals. I love history. Yeah. And it's watching it now as an older guy and particularly watching it with what's going on in the world right at this moment. Therefore, I had so many complicated feelings. Mm. And, and, and this is what's going to be, I, you know, this is going to be a weird podcast because this is what I was saying. I said this to Karen last night. It's like, I said, yeah. why is it that I feel that it's my responsibility to not just sum up this entire two hour and 45 minute musical, mm. but to sum up the entire history of the, of, of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the colonies, slavery, you know, mm. that, you know, it's like, you know, Ben Frank, all these huge characters. And I really did. And so, so like trying to reconcile both the musical. Yeah. And put it in historical context and then also deal with what's going on right now. Yeah. And how does that relate to this? There's a lot of stuff here we got to talk about. Yeah, I agree with you, Steve. Rewatching it for the podcast, uh, there was a extra level of poignancy uh, in some of the scenes. Certainly the uh, song from the South Carolina senator carries even more weight than it did before. The song from the young soldier who's coming from the front lines mm-hmm. when he's calling for his mom and and uh, kind of uh, re- making you remember. Uh, remember, that's the war for independence. 
independence and the civil war is only what 40 years away uh so you think about or uh, i'm sorry 80. a little bit a little, under 100 years away so four, it's still four score and seven years away to yeah four score and seven years away exactly as lincoln might say but yeah it was it wasn't that far away so you think about it, it certainly you could be born before the declaration of independence and have lived long enough to have witnessed the civil war that's how yep. close uh that is uh in terms of time and so this is uh, i agree with you it had an extra level of uh of depth and uh emotion for me as i was watching and thought certainly thought um uh and i hear you i mean it can be complicated but i appreciate the musical not being sh- not shying away from discussing the difficult uh compromises that had to be made for the or for the birth of this country you say had to be i say rather had to be um and that's the way i look at it but certainly there are other people that argue did it have to be this way and so that's another point of view to look at this film as well well this is the thing and, and the big this is the preface the 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 big subtitle i want to put on this episode of our podcast is that history is fiction yes is that when we were taught taught something like the great compromise i think that's one of the that ben franklin is a great compromiser that is what i was taught in school and that was taught as a good thing yeah and and just as like if you you know there's so much first of all of actual fiction that is what we really think of history so when i think of richard the third i think of shakespeare but that guy was nothing like what the actual Richard III is. Right. You know, when I think of William Randolph Hearst, the first person I think of is Charles Foster King. You know, <laughs> so first of all, we have these fictional things yeah. that sum up history. And then just, you know, the, the phrase history is written by the winners. It's like we, we choose to tell a story in a certain way. Yeah. And then at other times, people say, well, I want to tell that story in a different way, because the other big influence that affected me watching this is there is another Revolutionary War musical out there yeah. that I think is among the greatest pieces of art of the 21st century, which is mm-hmm. Hamilton. And yep. so like that's in my head, too. And so and that is a different fiction of history yeah. that is t- that has a different narrative thrust yeah i've never seen hamilton i don't like anything i've seen so far so maybe my opinion will change uh when i see it on the big or when i see it rather july 3rd on on disney plus when it drops because that's when they're showing uh releasing that movie that was supposed to come out next right. year they're releasing it on july 3rd so i'll watch it i mean t- i'm not the biggest fan of the beat poetry stuff approach to musicals it really kind of irritates me but maybe uh, when I watch it in context of the entire production, I will absolutely enjoy it. I don't know. I don't how know. Much of, this, how much of the music have you listened to? Uh, Mike and Sarah played it to me ad nauseum for a while after they had discovered it. Certainly, uh, Josh and Amber have played a couple of songs for me, especially some of the, a couple of poignant songs that are about the son of Alexander Hamilton, what happens to him mm-hmm. and the wife and all of that. Uh, so there have been songs that are played, and certainly, there's certainly emotion and strength behind that. But I don't know the general overall gist of this thing. And I think I need to see everything in context before I watch. I think Into the Woods is the only musical I've ever listened to ahead of time and loved before I actually watched the whole thing, uh, for sure. It'll be interesting to hear what you think, because it is very much a musical. As much as it mm-hmm. does honor to uh, hip hop and, and that there are all these references that are beyond me. But it's also doing references to Camelot and to mm-hmm. South Pacific and to Sondheim and to all these different uh 
uh, musical stuff. It is full yeah. musical. Um, yeah, maybe we will talk about Hamilton. That would be an interesting thing. Could uh, be a fun short. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I will give a little bit of pre-production. Obviously, this is from a Broadway play. It premiered in 1969. Peter Hunt, who is the director of the film, also directed the play. This was his wow. first big break. Wow. And the reason that this was his first big break is that no one wanted to direct it. <laughs> the producers <laughs> went around to all the guys, Fosse, Jerome Robbins, all the, you know, they went to everybody and everyone went like, I don't want to do that. Hmm. And so they, so Peter Hunt had directed a few small musicals off Broadway and some experimental things. They said, you're going to do it. William Daniels, when he first read the script, hated it. He thought it was no good. And he also thought, which is one of the reasons people were rejecting it, it's like, this is the middle of Vietnam. Uh, like, this isn't really the time to be doing the patriotic thing. Right. Um, but they did do it. It became a huge hit. It won three Tony Awards, including Best Musical. And one of the people that went to see it was a fairly old Jack Warner. Hmm. Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, who had been one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, he was now out of Warner Brothers. He no longer ran the studio. And he said, this is one of the best things I've ever seen. I want to make a movie out of it. And he bought the rights. And this, strangely enough, is the first movie Jack Warner ever produced. Wow, really? Because he was the head of the studio. Yeah, he didn't need to produce. No. Everyone else was producing. Wow. Well, I mean, maybe this is a man like near the end of his life. He sees another one of these like kind of really important musicals in his mind. Really well done. Good, good lyrics, good songs. And telling a message, a very honest message about how this country was born and felt the old school Hollywood desire to put this massive musical on screen. Uh, and maybe that was the motivation here. And I should say this, uh, Steve Peter Hunt, who directed the film, passed away earlier this year on oh, April I didn't 26th. Realize that. Yeah, 81 years old in L.A. He had directed up until about 2003 a number of television shows. and ton of TV. Uh, huh? A ton of TV. Yeah, a say. ton of TV, directed a ton of TV, but passed away earlier this year uh, at 81 years old and from Pasadena. So certainly a, a mm. hometown boy in that way here in Los Angeles. So uh, pretty great stuff. Well, what's so interesting and with Jack Warner producing is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the transition from the studio dominated mainstream mm. cinema that went up to the late 60s. And yeah. then, you know, through Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider and all those movies, we transitioned in the film of the 70s. This is an old school movie. This is yes, not is. a 70s movie. Yeah. This is very much an old fashioned musical in a lot of ways. And that's some of the stuff that I was... It, it was hard for me to adjust to, but I really genuinely liked once I made the adjustment. Yeah. Can I say okay. one thing here? Yeah. Uh, Steve, it might be interesting to think about this. Did Jack Warner make this as counter-programming to the counter-programming? Like kind of reversing course here. Yeah, you always want your hippie stuff and whatever, but I'm going to appeal to the quote-unquote what Nixon called the silent majority with a film that honors the um, – forefathers or the founding fathers rather of the country. I, I have no idea, but I think it's totally that. I, I, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I wanted to give just a brief bit of history of our main character and just tell you what I did. <laughs> so, cause I was, as I was preparing to do this, I was like, well, I should, I want to know more about the history. So I had listened to years ago and I redownloaded David McCullough's 1776 and I start oh. listening to it. 
And I get like halfway through and I go, oh, no, wait, this book is entirely about Washington and the war up in New York and Boston. This is not about John Adams. And so I went, (laughs) fuck. And I went, I can't do all of John Adams again. Um, The miniseries? Yeah. Yeah. No, not watching it, but listening to the David McCullough book. Oh, right. So so I downloaded it. And fortunately, it's only like seven hours to get to the end of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So I listened to that over the last few days. So I want to give you, because I'm a crazy person person because this is <laughs> i think you're a thorough person there's nothing wrong just, with that i just want to make sure i get it right <laughs> so i'm going to tell you a little bit about john adams he really is like the ultimate american story this is like he didn't come from money this is the best example you could think of of the protestant work ethic he obsessed about hard work and learning and to him there was no distinction between working in the field and studying justinian or reading Greek or Latin or whatever it was. Those were both the same. And, you know, this was a guy, unlike Jefferson and someone else, who had tough hands because he worked on a farm. In fact, all he wanted to do was work on a farm. It was his dad who forced him to go to Harvard, and his dad wanted him to be a minister. Mm. Adam's incredibly disciplined, incredibly well-read. He's literally like clearing tree stumps in his fields and then reading all night. You know, that's what this guy did. He was admitted to the bar in 1759, lost his first case as a lawyer. The big thing that put him on the map was after the Boston Massacre, which is where a bunch of British soldiers killed a bunch of civilians, he defended the British soldiers. Mm, How ironic. It is really ironic. And what he said is he believes in his duty and the rule of law says that they have to have a defense. And he basically got almost all of them off. Wow. And, And what he did, and this is just what's important, is he said the real reason that this happened was the policies of England, which had British soldiers quartered in American homes, which is part of that's why we have that amendment to the to in the Bill of Rights of you can't quarter soldiers in the homes. He said all of the policies of England is what caused the the Boston Massacre, not the soldiers. He was an incredibly successful lawyer. He was at the First Continental Congress in, in 1774, and that brings us to the Second Continental Congress in 1776, and it brings us to the beginning of the movie, where we begin, as all good musicals do, with an overture. Yes, we do. <laughs> This sequence, which is a like a, a big drawing, a very sort of half modern looking, half you know period drawing of uh, colonial characters, was cut by Jack Warner in the original film. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. Jack Warner thought it was long and boring. Well, because it comes off as the beginning of an educational video mm-hmm. or an educational film about 1776 versus a, a movie about this or a movie musical. I should say, by the way, that the musical is uh, written by Sherman Edwards and Peter Stone. And after our overture, we find John Adams at the bell tower of Independence Hall. Yeah. This is obviously like his refuge. This is where he goes when things in the Congress get too difficult. And he gets called downstairs and he runs downstairs. This is an amazing shot. Yes. It's basically once he gets out of the bell tower, it's all one shot going down these stairs and then goes into the actual Independence Hall where Congress is meeting. And this is pre-Steadicam. The way this was done was they have a forklift in between the stairs and the dolly is on the forklift. 
Right. And so they lower the forklift down as uh, William Daniels, who plays John Adams, is coming down. And then when it gets to the bottom, they pull the dolly off of the forklift, take it into the in events hall, and then do this full 360 move once you're in the hall. It is a ridiculously difficult shot. And the one thing the director said, which I find interesting, is when the dolly came off the forklift, there's a bump. And so in order to cover the bump, they have William Daniels sort of flare his jacket behind him. And yeah. that movement makes you not notice that the bump happened. Right. Um, that makes sense. That makes the, sense. The director says he thinks this is the first take. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I can't believe <laughs> Great job. Great but job, what, what, guy. What he said is, is that because this is all the Broadway cast, they didn't have to have a lot of rehearsal. Everybody knew what they were doing. They had to restage it. Right. But everyone had their characters. Everyone had the, the choreography is very similar to what happened in the play. Yeah. And that, that it freaked out the camera crew because they're like, oh, the first take is really good. We have to be really on the ball and not mess up. <laughs> and Adams uh, goes into Congress and we have a great quote, which is a quote from John Adams. I have come to the conclusion that one useless man is called a disgrace, that two are called a law firm, and that three or more become a Congress. This is one of those situations where I know this, the film more intimately than Steve does, so I'm yeah. going to jump in and, 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 and throw some things in here, and that's certainly... The, when uh, William Duell is the is the gentleman who plays uh, McNair, who is the guy who goes and mm. gets Adams, it is in it right off the bat you are introduced to this relationship of the uselessness of Congress because he he goes up there and he's looking for John Adams, and Adams couldn't be less bothered by the situation, and he's saying to him, well, they're going to debate something really important, and that is. Should the soldiers have the same uniforms, same color uniforms? <laughs> Should they be? It's something so ridiculous. And Adams's reaction gives you the insight into this character. His absolute frustrating, angry speed of, uh, of uh, movement reaction to the situation shows you the, the distaste he has for Congress and for the people in Congress so that when he bursts through that door, this is what generates that line. It's this idea of, I'm so sick of the fact that these fools sit here and debate instead of acting. And it's something you brought up earlier, Steve, with the background of this. This is a man who cuts tree stumps. This is a man about action. This is a man about completing tasks, completing yes. goals. He is uh -huh. a blue-collar boy about finishing the job. And so to ask, to ask him to sit here and debate endlessly must drive him insane. And that opening scene gives you the all you need to know about the kind of character John Adams is. I was going to read this quote, these two quotes a little later, but because of what you said, I'm going to say them right now, which is, yep. I have two quotes from John Adams about Congress. The first is his description uh, in a letter to Abigail, which are very, very famous, important letters yes. uh, of Congress when he first met them. And when he first met them, he was impressed. And this is what he said. He said, the art and addresses of ambassadors of a dozen belligerent powers of Europe, nay, a conclave of cardinals at the election of a pope would not exceed the specimens we have seen. Here are fortune's abilities, learning, eloquence, acuteness equal to any. Every question is discussed with moderation and acuteness and a minuteness equal to Queen Elizabeth's privy council. Mm. First of all, John Adams is an amazing writer. And yes. this is the time when people wrote letters and they, they, they're, they're really beautiful. So here's what he said a few months later. 
<laughs> he said, the business of Congress has become tedious beyond expression. <laughs> this assembly is like no other that ever existed. Every man in it is a great man, an orator, a critic, a statesman. Therefore, every man upon every question must show his oratory, his criticism, and his political abilities. The consequence of this is that business is drawn out to an unmeasurable length. <laughs> I believe if it was moved and seconded that we come to a resolution that three and two make five, we should be entertained with logic and rhetoric, law, history, and mathematics for two whole days, and then we should pass the resolution unanimously in the affirmative. <laughs> well, Steve, how many of us have worked with companies that have these meetings and you sit around l listening to the endlessly needless points being made by people who need to hear themselves talk or need to hear themselves feel like they're actually making some kind of effect on this so they can have some sort of ownership about the ultimate decision, even though you could just get to the decision and move on to the next thing. Well, let's take it one step to its logical conclusion. How many times have you watched one of those hearings in Congress? Oh, my God. Where every single congressman or senator has to say their thing. Has to grandstand, yeah. 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 I mean, it's just it's so just, just still going on. It doesn't matter if they're repeating the exact same points that the 30 other representatives just said or the other 30 senators just said. They've got to say it so they can feel like their constituents are having a voice heard in that Congress and they can get reelected. You're right. And while the Congress is dithering, this is what John Adams is upset about. And this is what he says. And still, this Congress refuses to grant any of my proposals on independence, even so much as the courtesy of open debate. Good God, what in hell are you waiting for? Sit down, John. Yeah. Sit down, John. Sit down, John. Oh, for God's sake, listen to me. I love this song. It, it's look, really funny. Steve, you might as well know this from the beginning. I see myself as John Adams in this movie. I thoroughly, I'm obnoxious shocking. and disliked at times. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm obnoxious and disliked. When other people propose things, they seem to go down better when other than when I propose them. <laughs> Being called an agitator, certainly I've been called that before. And uh, the desire to just get things done and move on to the next task. Uh, there's so much about John Adams that I enjoy in the movie. The character of John Adams in the movie, right? The person John Adams, I could never aspire to be. Uh, he's such an incredibly well-read, well-spoken, oh, yeah. accomplished person in terms of becoming president as well. Uh, but uh, overall, the character of John Adams is something that I've always felt a connection to, which is why I love the film as much as I do, I'm sure. And hopefully someday, before I'm too old, would love to play it in the stage version uh, myself personally. I'm, I'm sign me up. I, I will. I will. I, I I will buy two tickets and somewhere in the middle. I you're think. my Ben Franklin. You can't buy two tickets. You're in the play. You're there. in the play. There's no way you're not <laughs> Ben to, Franklin in the play. I'm going to have to work on my singing, but we'll do, we'll do the best we can. <laughs> Thank you, by the way. I'm honored to be your Ben Franklin. How could you not be? <laughs> um, um, and what this song is, and of course I will play some of it. It is John desperately trying to get them to do something mm -hmm. and them desperately trying to get him to shut the hell up. <laughs> I say vote, yes. Vote for independence. Have mercy, John, please. It's hot as hell in Philadelphia. It is a really funny song, and it does throw you right into this. What I'm going to say is a very peculiar musical yeah. whose tone is sort of in different places. And right now, even though we're talking about a serious thing, we're talking about it in a very comedic way. Yeah. 
it's almost a musical of manners with some of the how can I say this? Some of the more base elements thrown in to show that these are human beings as well. Because when they're saying sit down, John, it isn't just the one side that's against John. Oh, it's, it's the group. entire Congress. It's the entire Congress who's probably sick of having him bring up all the time the question of independence and they'd like to move on. Because John, I imagine, keeps bringing it up because they don't answer in the affirmative right. for him and move on. And this, by the way, is a direct, very clear intention of the director and the writers, which is that the first thing they wanted to do was humanize the founding fathers. Yes. Yeah. They didn't want the to be the Mount Rushmore people on high. Right. And it was critical to do that. And I think this scene does a beautiful job. And what it does, you know, I think it's a really smart thing to criticize your main character right at the beginning of your of your movie. Self-deprecation. Yeah. We get a sense of who this guy is, which is he is right. He is passionate. <laughs> he doesn't know how to shut up. He doesn't know how to like make alliances and he's not smooth and mm -hmm. he is going to be a difficult person. Also, he's strong. He's not cowed by, oh, yeah. by standing up on his own against the entire Congress. It does not intimidate him or overwhelm him because his belief in his righteousness or his belief in his right uh, rightness is so firm uh, in his foundation as a person. And that is certainly true of John Adams. I mean, he, he was a brilliant, important, critical person to our history that was very difficult and often was his own worst enemy. Yeah. Um, but what isn't true is he was not unpopular at all in Congress. <laughs> He was incredibly popular, incredibly sought after, very important. He served, he was one of the hardest working people there, not surprisingly. He served on 23 committees and was the head of many of them. He's the guy who got George Washington appointed to the head of the Continental Congress or the, the Continental Army. Yep. Like he was probably the critical figure. And so this idea of everyone being irritated by him, that's really not true, but it does completely work in the context of this uh, show. I say vote yes. Stone Cold. Vote for independence. Will someone shut that man up? Never. And now he goes outside. And uh, and this is, by the way, shot in the San Fernando Valley. They built about seven blocks of colonial Philadelphia. The um, cobblestones is really interesting what they did because getting actual cobblestones would be really expensive. Mm. So this is actually just asphalt that they rolled. And then they had a press that had a cobblestone indentations. You know, it was like a print. Oh, wow. It's just like cookie cutters that they just laid down on the hot asphalt as they went around. And that's how they made the cobblestone. And then they painted it. Wow. It was also extremely cold when they shot this, so cold that William Daniels had steam coming out of his mouth. And so he had to suck on ice cubes before every shot to lower the temperature of his mouth so that it would be cold coming out so he didn't make the steam. And if, he, and if the take went on too long, his mouth would warm up and then you'd see the steam coming out of his mouth. By the way, William Daniels is one of the most notable uh, uh, heads of SAG. And uh, oh, yeah. for, those, uh, for those of you, or presidents of SAG, for those of you who are young ones and you're fans of Boy Meets World, William Daniels is the principal in Boy Meets World. But the, he, at this point, he is in full virility as yeah. an actor. Which he discusses his virility later <laughs> yes, on in the does. film. Yes, he does. Um, and he expresses his upset with what's going on. Dear God. For one solid year, they have been sitting here, a whole year, doing nothing. I do believe you've laid a curse on North America. 
a curse that we hear now rehearsing Philadelphia. A second flood, a simple famine, plagues of locusts everywhere. Or a cataclysmic earthquake, I'd accept with some despair. But no, you sent us Congress. Good God, sir, was that fair? And I love the line, we twiddle, piddle, and resolve, and not one thing we ever solve. Not one damn thing do we solve. Not one damn thing do we solve. Yeah. You're going to correct me a lot, by the way. No, I'm sorry. No, yeah. no, 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 that's not, no, that is a, that is a, uh, an imperative, okay. not a criticism. <laughs> you you will rec- correct me a lot. Um, and then we go into this strange soft focus, which is a strange filmmaking choice. And he talks to Abigail. Yeah, it's like these. This is the the theatrical manifestations of their letters. Yep, yep. Is which that I they, loved. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really and and, and we should say. Uh, Abigail Adams is one of the most brilliant, powerful, important figures, male or female, mm-hmm. in the in the revolution. In any other era or any later era, she would be as great a person as John Adams, I believe. And I think you can you can connect her to Eleanor Roosevelt. Literally, I, that's in my notes. Right oh, there. sorry. Okay, no, sorry. No, no, good. Yeah. Again, not sorry. <laughs> I'm saying I agree with you. That's great. Yeah. yeah, that's that is. I think it's the most important partnership between a husband and wife up until FDR and Eleanor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just tell the Congress to declare independence. Then sign your name, get out of there, and hurry home to me. And then we get into a discussion of salt peter <laughs> and pins we've gone from framingham to boston and we cannot find a pin don't you know there is a war on say the tradesman with a grin well we will not make salt peter until you send us pins pins madam salt peter pins salt peter pins Salt Peter. Pins. Salt Peter. Pins. Salt Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Peter. Pins. Yeah, like you said, Steve, it's a great uh, encapsulation of their relationship and a presentation of their relationship, actually, an initial presentation and the letters. And the softness adds to the feeling that these two have a genuine love for each other. But both headstrong, both strong in their opinions, and she knows how to handle them. She knows how to him when he goes, so Peter, mm-hmm. and she softly just says, pins. and it's you're done, madam, done. It's it's perfect. I, well, it's funny. I think it's a really good song, but I don't I think they do Abigail a disservice because because mm. having her talk about pins mm. and it's these things that ladies need to, you know, make their dresses and do their sewing. Yeah doesn't talk about the fact that this is a brilliant mind who he discussed all the elements of government with. That's a you know, good point. But 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 it is a good song, and it certainly shows their connection. And by the way, there's just one thing I want to point out. She talks about all the things that are going on and that the kids have dysentery and there's flu yeah. and we're worried about smallpox. Well, there was a smallpox outbreak in Boston at this time. Mm. And so what everyone did was to go get a small uh, inoculated mm-hmm. to smallpox. And this is what Abigail and her family did. Do you know how inoculation, quote unquote, inoculation worked at this time? No, I don't. You would go find someone with smallpox. You would scrape one of their pustules to get the gunk out. You would make an incision in a healthy person and stick the pus of the unhealthy person into them to create, hopefully, a weak version of smallpox so they would then get immunity. 
Yeah. So it's almost like what we have now for pneumonia, whatever, what is it that you get the shot for? Well, so this is the origin of where vaccines become. Yeah. 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 yeah which is yeah. In, in a vaccine, you get a, a basically a dead version of the virus. Yeah. And then that causes your body to build the antibodies. Mm. And at this time, we got a live version of the pus <laughs> oh put God. in and they were like holed up in some house for like three months. And the kids, I mean, like, and a lot of people would die. Like when you get went to get inoculated for smallpox, what you were saying, there was like, you know, a high percentage of people like you ain't going to make it. Yeah, and Jesus. a bunch of you who are going to get really, really, really sick. But yeah. the advantage is that then you're going to be safe from smallpox in the future. Wow. Yeah. So that's what they were doing. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like the administration is doing to, that to us now. Uh, well, well, <laughs> well, this is one of the things that is being discussed right now is, are you immune to the coronavirus? If right. You've had it before. And we, and we still don't entirely know the answer to that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're doing things where people that do have the antibodies, because they do the antibody, they're doing blood transfusions to see if that helps people. Yeah. I mean, you know, trying to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And we end with, I love, they just kind of go back. Salt Peter John pins <laughs> Abigail. It's, and they do this thing, which is that structurally what happens is that first we go, we go into the soft focus and he's in Philadelphia and she's in Boston. And then we're in a fo soft focus where we, they're kind of closer and then they're together. Yeah. And they, we can see that spiritually they've joined each other. And now at the end, they slowly pull apart. Yeah. Until they are far, far away from each other again. Salt Peter. I think Ryan Johnson and J.J. Abrams should have noted this film as influencing the relationship between Ray and Kylo Ren in their communication with each other, because that's essentially the same technique that they use. I'm just so. picturing, I'm picturing uh, Kylo Ren saying, "Pins, Ray, <laughs> Salt Peter, Kylo." <laughs> yeah, I mean that would be fun, but yeah, but they have that union when they're together and they sing together, right? Uh, I, which is essentially the way they signed off on their letters. And so you get that, you get that sense of, and I hear you, Steve, that is, uh, you're right. It is uh, under, cause we don't see Abigail necessarily get involved in the congressional stuff, but she does radiate a strength and a, uh, for oh, this yeah. actress, I think Virginia Vestoff, I think is her name. What she does with her is just uh, fantastic. She's just strong. She's determined. She is, she knows what she has to do with this man. And she's very clear, you know, be done with them. And come back to me because that's also a part of their relationship, Steve. They were genuinely 100%. desperately in love with each other and wanted to be around each other all the time. And she is great. And by the way, she is one of the very few replacements from the Broadway cast. Mm. The original Abigail is Betty Buckley, the great Betty Buckley. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I did not know that. Okay. I, I have no idea why she was replaced at all. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're going to go meet someone who was almost replaced, which is Howard De Silva as Benjamin Franklin, who is yeah. so good in this movie. Yeah, he's the. Best. I measure all Ben Franklins by Howard De Silva ever since I saw this movie. He is fantastic. Apparently, he was horrible to deal with <laughs> in the Broadway play. He was difficult to everyone. He played all sorts of power games. I know, having been an actor on the stage, you know some of the like upstaging power games. Oh yeah, focused. He did all that stuff. He, he pushed around the director because he's a first-time director, mm -hmm. and. 
apparently he tried to pull some of this stuff on Ken Howard. And <laughs> Ken Howard's six seven. <laughs> and it, like, it was like, no, you can't upstage me, dude. <laughs> Do you see the size? And Ken Howard being a former athlete, former basketball player, yeah. I'm sure had some uh, some words for uh, Mr. De Silva. Um, and, and so the director had just decided, I'm not casting him in the movie. He's out. Wow. Yeah, because he was such a pain in the ass. So the director was like, nope, you're not coming on. He went and did all sorts of auditions with all sorts of people, wasn't finding anyone. Howard De Silva called him up, took him out to lunch, begged for the part wow. and basically said, I'll be good. <laughs> and the director couldn't find anyone. He cast De Silva. De Silva was good on the whole shoot. He was great. Uh, he was yep. on his best behavior the whole time. <laughs> See, so it is possible. That's the thing about the yeah. frustrating nature of people <laughs> and especially actors. You can be a better person. You just choose not to be in certain moments and you choose to be a dick. You choose to upstage other people. You choose to, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of gender, you choose to try to take the spotlight from other people. And I find that to be so frustrating because you know that you don't have to. But it does radiate an insecurity of yourself as an actor when you do that kind of crap. And Howard DeSilva is shocking because Howard DeSilva was all through uh, black and white movies, a very sought after character actor. Yeah, we should say that there's some construction going on near John's yeah. place, and we're going to do our best to talk around it. But occasionally you might hear some little weird grating sounds. Yes, I apologize. They're doing an earthquake retrofitting uh, around my apartment uh, so that we don't all fall into the sea. Uh, uh, but so they're going but they're going to make some noises. And I, I never know what they're going to do day to day. Uh, but we scheduled our recording for this day. So hopefully they, it won't be too loud. So uh, this is also the first time we see the exterior of Independence Hall. It's a really weird story of how they got this. There are no good architectural plans of Independence Hall. Mm -hmm. And so they found someone who had somehow gotten them. And it is the weirdest way I could imagine, which is <laughs> it's Knott's Berry Farm. Oh, Knott's really? Berry Farm decided they wanted to build a replica of Independence Hall, which I think is still there, although I don't remember it. Yeah. And so they managed, they did massive research to figure out the, the plans and the paint colors and the materials used. And so when they're making this movie, they got their uh, information from Knott's Berry Farm. So this is not actually a replica of Independence Hall. It's a replica of the Knott's Berry Farm amusement park version of Independence Hall, which is a replica of Independence Hall. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. I love it. I love it. And they built basically the whole thing except the tower. The tower is a matte painting, but everything else they built. And what is Ben Franklin doing right now? He's getting his portrait done. <laughs> <laughs> and I love John Adams. He, he you know, criticizes the, the painter. He says the man's no Botticelli. And the subject's no Venus. Him being on his best behavior is a good thing because... <laughs> it does sound like I'm dropping bombs in here, right? That's a little bit. I know it's frustrating. When I was on SEN yesterday and they were doing this, I was just like, <laughs> so "It's the worst. It's the worst." Franklin, where were you last night when I needed you? You should have heard what I suffered in there. Oh, I heard all right, along with the rest of Philadelphia. Lord, your voice is piercing, John. Well, I wish to heaven my arguments were. And says, like, look, we're already at war. Which is what's so, I think people don't really remember. The war started several years before we declared independence. Yeah. So there's an army in the field fighting against the king, but we're not actually saying we're a country yet. You're talking as if independence were the rule. It's never been done before. 
No colony has ever broken from the parent stem in the history of the world. This is an important moment in the movie because they're talking about something that maybe people who are watching the first time may not know, was that we moved from the mother's stem for the first time. Well, this is what's so strange is that there, there had been rebellions. Yes. But the rebellions were always, this country conquered these people, and then those people rebelled against the people that conquered them. Right. And this is what's unique about America. And it's, you know, something you read about in Alexei de Tocqueville, um, Democracy in America, is that one of the reasons this works so well for us is that we were educated people who had already really been governing ourselves. So when we said we're going to get rid of the king, there wasn't this huge transition where other countries that have thrown off the colonizers have gone usually into a period of chaos because yeah. they weren't used to governing themselves. Franklin, you make a sound treason us. Treason, eh? Treason is a charge invented by winners as an excuse for hanging the losers. And then he says, I don't have time to sit here and watch you quote yourself all day. Goes, oh, that's a good one. That was a new one, John. So, you know, you get already you get a window into their relationship, yep. with, which is as good friends do. They know how to ball bust each other. No matter mm -hmm. what level of achievement you've achieved, you're still a human being. And especially Franklin, who is, was quite bawdy in some of his writings. Oh, yeah. He can't, have his, he can't get his balls busted by, <laughs> by John Adams. And, I thought, and it's a great self-deprecating way to introduce Ben Franklin as well. John, why don't you give it up? Nobody listens to you. You're obnoxious and dislike. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hear that phrase a lot. I'm not promoting John Adams. I'm promoting independence. Evidently, they can't help connecting the two. And now we see, kind of start to get the hint that Franklin has a plan, which is essentially to separate independence from John Adams by having someone else propose it. And one of the great things, and this is true of John Adams, is that his ego... He didn't live on ego. He definitely lived on, I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. But not necessarily that he needed to get the credit. Why? Who'd you have in mind? I don't know. I really haven't given it much thought. <laughs> in walks this guy, rides this guy, dressed <laughs> in orange. Um, and this is Richard Henry Lee of Virginia. As you know, the cause that we support has come to a complete standstill. Now, why do you suppose that is? Simple. Johnny here is obnoxious and disliked. That's true. This is played by Ron Holgate, who won the Tony Award for this. Oh, I can see why. He's so good at this. <laughs> to Virginia, a mother of American independence. Incredible. We're free and he hasn't even left yet. What makes you so sure you can do it? My name is Richard Henry Lee. Virginia is my home. My name is Richard Henry Lee. Virginia is my home. And may my horses turn to glue. If I can't deliver up to you my resolution on independence, for I am FFB, the first family in the sovereign colony of Virginia. This is where Karen and I are watching it and just sort of reeling of like, wait, what is this thing? Because <laughs> this is such a classic, old school, yeah. goofy, over the top, really, really funny musical number. Socially, political, Lee. financial, Lee. natural, Lee. internal, Lee. external, Lee. fraternal, Lee. eternal, Lee. the FFB, the first family in the sovereign colony of Virginia. Yeah, exactly. He he. They make him think like it, like all good producers, Steve, and you know yeah. this. They make him think like it's his idea, uh, so that he will have even more uh, desire 
to uh, go there and uh, present the case to Virginia. And that's another reason why I love this movie too. Having grown up in Virginia my whole life, this character, Richard Henry Lee, is such a, uh, you know, a part of Virginia and such a great character to enjoy in the movie. And if the, he doesn't come back and, and uh, propose independence, this whole movie right. isn't happening and maybe independence isn't happening according to the, uh, the uh, constructs of the movie. So um, I, I love it. It's a great number too. And what you, what the song is, is just a talking about how great the Lees of Virginia are. <laughs> yes. Spoken modestly. God help him. Oh, he will, John. He will. They say that God in heaven is everybody's God. Amen. I'll admit that God in heaven is everybody's God. But I tell you, John, with pride, God leans a little on the side of the Lees, the Lees of old Virginia. And listing a bunch of the Lees, by the way, uh, his cousin is general light horse henry lee mm -hmm. and that is robert e lee's father wow yeah i never connected the fact that this guy could be robert e lee this is the lees of virginia wow dude color me stupid i just never once thought to connect robert e lee because you know i see richard henry lee as this fun jovial dude who has a, a very healthy self-confidence <laughs> and i don't necessarily connect him with our robert e lee who was a very pained uh retrospective man about his uh, about his military career and his life interesting wow okay Maybe that's another reason why this is complicated for you to watch too. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, this is this is history. And by yeah. the way, Richard Henry Lee was not a big bombastic guy. He was a very <laughs> respectable guy. John Adams liked him a lot, and it's John. It was actually John Adams' idea that Virginia should propose it. Makes sense. It wasn't that it shouldn't come from John Adams because no one likes him. It's that Virginia is the oldest colony, and it is the unifying colony, as you know, as we talked about when we talked about the Civil War. Is it is right between the North and the South, and it has elements of the North and the south and that's why he knew virginia had to do it and but the, the the gags all of the saying a word and completing it with lee is so fun First family of Virginia. It's so great. And part of the real fun is that Ben Franklin is having fun. Yes. So he is enjoying, he just loves this guy. He thinks he's hilarious. He loves the repeating of the Lee. By the way, there's a moment they're dancing around kind of this fountain. Uh, this is very much the choreography from the actual stage play. Wow. That fountain is the fountain from the opening of Friends. Oh, how funny. Wow. Okay. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, and by the way, one thing they didn't know is that this actor happened to be a great horseman, mm. which didn't come up when they were doing the stage play, but was really useful here because it's not actually easy to do choreography with a horse in a musical number. Yeah. That's actually kind of hard. And this is another moment where this film makes these uh, subtle, well, not subtle, but certainly playful sexual references about men's virility at this mm -hmm. time. Because he says, I'm going to stop by and just refresh the missus, and oh, then I'm right. going to head on out, right? <laughs> and we'll, later on, we'll see Thomas Jefferson and Abigail. The whole thing is about them having sex. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly earlier, John Adams and uh, – sorry, uh, is it Abigail? No, I'm sorry, Martha. Martha. Martha, Thomas and Martha. The whole thing is about them having sex. And then John and Abigail. Earlier, Abigail sings, there's one thing every uh, maid's missed in Massachusetts mm -hmm. Bay. Don't smirk at me, you <laughs> egotist. 
pay heed because of course he defaults to the fact that yeah you've missed some uh, you know some sex for me and so it's like this thing that is subtly running through this whole film that also makes it interesting and as steve said earlier humanizes the founding fathers yeah. it's also very much a thing that's out of that older school version of musicals where we would have an implication of a thing and kind of a joke about a body thing as opposed to the 70s we're going to do taxi driver, you know, or hair where everyone's naked, where everyone's naked. Exactly. We end up back in Congress. We see, and this is something we're going to see throughout the thing that there's a big calendar on the wall and we tear off June 6th and we're now on June 7th. And here's something they said in the commentary track. I have no evidence if this is true, but they say this is the longest stretch in any Broadway musical without a song. It's over 30 minutes between, uh, between the Lees of Virginia and uh, who's going to write the, well, I forget the name of the song. That makes sense because so much, because you've got so much that happens here with Pennsylvania, so much happens with introducing the delegation from New Jersey, uh, the votes. Say, say, uh, say that part again. Okay. This is interesting because, yeah. <laughs> I just can't wait till they fucking finish. But. <laughs> it's like this is like the worst audition ever right you're just like sitting there waiting for the producer to pay attention to you before you start <laughs> you've been doing a really good job i i might actually include this in the show it's really <laughs> fun we should make this available for the patrons only at the 50 dollar and above yeah, you need to hear my frustration <laughs> Yeah, it is a long time because it's like you've got to cover what happens with Pennsylvania. John Dickinson really comes to the forefront during this 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Also, we get the delegation of New Jersey uh, and their reverend uh, John Witherspoon, I think. And that's, the, of course, the actor who ends up becoming the governor in Benson. Uh, that oh, is really? Same, that is the same actor that's in Benson. That's who he is. I kept, I kept going like, this guy is so familiar. Yep. And then we get more with John Hancock as well and more about this idea. of, And then Thomas Jefferson finally speaks in these 30 minutes as well. And if you've been watching the musical, he is calmly sitting by the window with his leg up just writing. His leg's up mm-hmm. just writing. He's not participating in the debates at all. So when Thomas Jefferson speaks, it's almost like Silent Bob in Jay and Silent Bob. Totally. Everyone turns and stares at him and they know because it's and it's a great character introduction. The first time he speaks, everyone is attentive. And quiet. Why? Because Thomas Jefferson is this revered character in history. What a great way to introduce him. So yeah, a lot happens in these 30 minutes. So it makes sense uh, that, uh, you know, it's kind of notable that you don't have a song in here. By, by the way, I just want to point out that once again, we have a first on the cinephiles. This is the first comparison between Thomas Jefferson and Silent Bob. This <laughs> never happened before in the history of the world. You heard it here first. Yeah. It's going to go down in the annals. That is absolutely on point. I've got a weird mind, man. I've got a weird mind. <laughs> uh, excuse me. Uh, yes, I'm Dr. Lyman Hall, the new delegate from Georgia. And we have some more people coming in. We have Stephen Hopkins, who is a delegate from Rhode Island, who is the old, drunk, crotchety guy. McNair, fetch two rum. Oh, I, I fear it's a little early in the day. Nonsense. It's a medicinal fact that rum gets a man's heart started in the morning. Um, Adams actually loved Stephen Hopkins, mm. one of his favorite people. He was a big drinker of rum, but he never drank during the day. And apparently, at the end of the day, the rum would start pouring and everyone would hang out to listen to his stories because he was just the warmest, funniest, most interesting guy in the Congress. I'll tell you one thing about Lyman Hall. The actor Jonathan Moore is also an Amadeus. Mm. 
two characters, two actors in this movie end up in Amadeus as part of the court. Oh, Samuel, I think Patrick Hines, who plays Samuel Chase, he yes, oh. he yes, plays yes, Capelmeister yes. Bono. Of course. Um, and the other one that Dr. Lyman Hall, Jonathan Moore, he plays kind of the only person in the court that actually likes Amadeus and help tries to help him uh, by giving him to propose the German opera. So both of those gentlemen are in Amadeus. Ah, interesting. Um, and of course, the big question that is going to get asked over and over is where does Georgia stand on independence? With South Carolina, of course. Ha ha ha, Nettie, good morning. Nettie, come over here and shake the hand of Dr. Lyman Hall of Georgia. Dr. Hall, this here is Edward Rutledge from whichever Carolina he says he's from. God knows I can't keep him straight. It's a pleasure, Dr. Hall. You're seven, Mr. Rutledge. And one thing we notice right away is the difference in the costuming. Yeah. That the people from the North are wearing sort of drabber, more practical, more somber clothes. And the people from the South are wearing bright colors and silks and very elegant and uh, much more high fashion. And that obviously is a, is a choice. Yeah. And we introduce Georgia to the other delegates of the South. And they ask, uh, where do you stand on independence, Dr. Hall? I'm here without instructions, Mr. Hughes, able to vote my own personal convictions. And they are? And there's a long look. Personal. And th this is not what they want to hear because they say the Deep South vo votes with one voice. It's tradition. Even more, it is historical. It's not true at all. Deep South did not <laughs> vote with one voice. Um, uh, North Carolina was for independence the whole time. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, but the, and this is the thing. This is, this is what we're going to get to. I'm going to point out where, I mean, obviously I'm not going to point out everything that's wrong, but, but one thing we should say, there is no record of what was said in the Continental Congress, which is kind of remarkable. Right. Right. There was no person writing down what was going on. So most, I mean, maybe they didn't know it was one of the most important moments in history, mm -hmm. but it is one of the most important history. And everything we know is either from kind of newspaper articles of the time or the memoirs of the people that participated. So we really don't know exactly what happened. And, and there's a lot of choices that are made here that are not accurate, but are dramatic. Yeah. And so that's the thing when, you know, is that this is the thing we talked about a lot of times on the cinephiles is how do we balance the historical accuracy with the drama? And at what point have we gone too far? And one of the important things for the drama of this show is that the South votes as one. Also, Steve, the reason it's set up this way is later when we when the vote has to be unanimous. The fact that he has to win over the entire South and not state by state becomes a very important thing when we get to that ugly compromise that has to be made. Absolutely. No, that's exactly why this is set up this way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we meet Caesar Rodney from mm -hmm. Delaware, who becomes a very important character. And he's an old man. He's got some patch on his face because, you know, he has skin cancer. He seems very frail. And he asked to talk to Dr. Hall privately. Would you be a doctor of medicine or theology? Both, Mr. Rodney. Which one can be of service? By all means, the physician first. Then we shall see about the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good line that makes us yeah. like this guy right away. Absolutely. And then a big, elegant carriage pulls up, and out comes John Dickinson, who is the representative of Pennsylvania, who is going to be one of our antagonists. Uh, tell me, Doctor, where do you stand on the question of... Independence? Treason. I have no stomach for it. And I like this line. 
Ah, then be careful not to dine with John Adams. Between the fish and the souffle, you'll find yourself hanging from an English rope. Your servant, sir. And sadly, uh, the character who plays Dickinson uh, passed away from lung cancer at only 43 years old. And oh, he wow. had such an, elk- such an incredible voice in this movie. And yes, he's kind of essentially the villain in this movie, but like, um, along with Rutledge. But there's uh, just a way that he conveys it's it's so above, and it's just sitting there. It's just sitting yeah. there. It doesn't feel put on. It doesn't feel unnatural. But it's such a great voice inflection to radiate this feeling of being above you, you know. And I and I love the performance that he does in this movie. You know? And then we get an entrance of Franklin being carried by a two person <laughs> litter. <laughs> they bring him into the into the Congress, and he and he gets out, and he says, uh, "Here you are, two coppers apiece. Now straight back to jail with you." <laughs> so he really did this. Franklin really hired convicts to carry him around. They were released from jail for the day, and then they went back in jail at night. It's almost like hiring an ambulance to take you from one radio uh, <laughs> radio performance to another, aka Orson Welles. Absolutely. What are you staring at? Haven't you ever seen a great man before? <laughs> Good Lord, sir. Do you have the honor to be Dr. Franklin? Yes, I have that honor. Unfortunately, the gout accompanies the honor. And Adams comes in pissed. Well, Franklin, where's that idiot Lee? Is he back yet? I don't see him. Softly, John. Your voice is hurting my foot. And Franklin, and this is going to be his role a lot. He's trying to settle him down. Yep. And then Dickinson has this great riff. Tell me, James, how do you explain the strange monumental quietude that Congress has been treated to these past 30 days? Has the ill wind of independence finally blown itself out? (laughs) And Wilson starts to answer. Well, if you ask me... For myself, I must confess that a month free from New England noise is more therapeutic than a month in the country. Don't you agree, James? And then again, Wilson tries to talk. Well... I feel Mr. Adams, pray look for your voice, sir. It cannot be far, and God knows we need the entertainment in this Congress. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing about Dickinson and Adams. They actually did have, they did disagree, although their disagreements were not what actually is in this uh, movie. Swinging canes at each other? Yeah. They did carry canes. By the way, Adams was well known for pounding the cane as he spoke to punctuate things that he would say. Wow. So they did carry canes. Um, here's the thing that sucks is he admired Dickinson. Dickinson was a very profound person, but he also got irritated with him. And in all these letters, he's writing regularly back to Abigail. He writes one letter where he just ripped Dickinson to pieces as you do in private to your spouse. That letter was intercepted by a British spy. Oh, wow. And England published it. Wow. To try to dis. For, uh, ferment dissent. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. it was a huge scandal. And basically for weeks, Adams was ostracized for, for writing this letter, this private letter, you know, wow. and eventually forgiven and they learned to work together again. But it was like a big scandal at the time, as you could imagine. Gentlemen, the uh, usual morning festivities concluded. I will now call Congress to order. John Hancock is in charge. He's the president of the Congress. We call the roll. Hmm. Um, and one thing we ask is, where is New Jersey? Somewhere between New York and Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> we also hear at this moment that uh, Franklin's son resides, that he's actually the governor of New Jersey. By the way, and by the way, this is an important thing to know, too, Steve. This was legitimate. Like, uh, Ben Franklin and his son had a terrible relationship. Uh, his son was a loyalist to the British crown. 
Uh, and uh, it caught, I, I don't know if they ever made amends before he passed. Because uh, I think he was, when they when the revolution happened, they arrested him and put him in jail. His son was put in jail. Um, they asked Thomas Jefferson for the weather report. <laughs> and he literally just sticks his hand out or whatever and uh, gives the weather report. Uh, we, we mentioned it before, but Thomas Jefferson is played by Ken Howard. Mm-hmm. Did you watch The White Shadow? Hell yeah. Loved Ken Howard. Loved The White Shadow. I loved it too. I thought it was a great show. Yeah. And it is definitely falls into a category of a show whose heart was in the right place <laughs> and also has this um, pattern of this is the white savior coming to help the, the minorities, the troubled right. minorities. Well, I you mean, know? in the 70s, I don't think there's anything wrong with that because that was actually happening. And white people had gone down to march and civil rights protests to put highlight and like I said on another podcast, I don't know if it's ours or another podcast, like if white people don't get involved in your cause, who are the majority race in this country, your cause is not going to eventually cause change. And it's like, that's what happens. That's what has to happen in any society when the majority race understands what the minority race is uh, enduring or suffering, then change starts to happen, right? Civil rights didn't start to really change until the mom and pops in the Midwest or in the other states saw uh wallace turning the hoses on black people who were protesting peacefully for their civil rights and so when you see this kind of white savior thing back in the 70s i don't have an issue with it because it's still connected uh, to the 60s approach to things it's about bettering the situation when it's still happening in 2020 or in the 2000s in movies that's when i start to have a problem with it well this is this is the thing and, and this is something we talked about way way back when we did in the heat of the night because in the year of in the heat of the night is also guess who's coming to dinner yes and guess who's coming to dinner is very much the conservative midwest sort of view of progressive race issues in America at that time. And the character Sidney Poitier plays in that movie is, and this was what he was criticized for frequently, was known as the exceptional black man. Yeah. Is that he was perfect. And so you present these nice liberal white people with the perfect black man and they deal with their own racism. And it is a very palatable, a very acceptable a broad kind of story as opposed to in the heat of the night where we're really dealing with some complexity and difficulty mm-hmm. and that people will criticize uh, guess who's coming to dinner to, for being, you know, this is a white people version of this kind of story, right? Not being really real. And just as I think there's a criticism of the white shadow, but both of those things have their heart in the right place. Yeah. And this is the thing. And yet then we also go, as time moves on, we go, well, we wouldn't tell that story that way anymore and that is what this movie 1776 is and it's also things that we can say about our founding fathers which we can say they had their hearts in the right places yeah but maybe there's some things that they did that we wouldn't do that way anymore and this is like this is why i went i think and i know making it about the white shadow (laughs) is a weird way to to introduce this topic but this is why as i'm contemplating this film it became very interesting to me because this is the approach of how we looked at this history at this moment in time yeah and hamilton is approach of looking at this history 40 years later you know and then and then with what's going on in the world right now literally people are discussing do we tear down thomas jefferson's statues yeah that's kind of mind-blowing to me that one i mean when they tore down theodore roosevelt's statue too that really bothered me He's such an environmentalist. Uh, it's shocking that they would want to tear down his stuff. 
he's he invited Frederick Douglass to the White House, if I remember correctly. Booker T. Washington. I'm sorry, Booker T. Washington yeah. to the White House and, and endured an incredible amount of criticism for that, but did it, you know? And so uh, there are, it's, you have to, you can't just, okay, this, kill it. You know, it's like, it's, you got to have logic in when you're approaching these situations. So the Teddy Roosevelt one is, is very interesting because he, uh, he cared a lot about Native Americans. Yes. He lived in the West. He was with them. He cared about their culture. He, he is the, there were no African-Americans working in the federal civil service mm-hmm. before Teddy Roosevelt. He yeah. opened it up to African-Americans and he brought them into the civil service. He brought, as we said, Booker T. Washington to the White House. And when Wilson became president, who was a horrible racist, he yes. kicked them all out. But the statue is a statue with Teddy Rose. This is the one that was at the Natural History Museum, I think, yeah. in New York. And the statue is Teddy Roosevelt on a horse and an African-American man on one side and a Native American man on the other side in very subservient positions. And it is Fair. very much the, the narrative of that statue is the great white father helping the people. And so, so what, that's fair. But, and this is the thing, this is why I said at the very beginning, history is fiction. You know what I mean? Is that that statue is telling a particular story. Unfortunately, what people are taking from it is because they don't know history as they go. Teddy Roosevelt was obviously a racist. The opposite is true for his time. I mean, my guess is if we asked Teddy Roosevelt today about his feelings about race, he would sound like a racist to us today. Hmm. But at the time, because that's, how, you know, if you said, Teddy Roosevelt, do you want a black man to marry your daughter? He would say, of course not. Yeah. You know, he might even use language that we wouldn't like. But at the time, he was moving things forward. Yeah. But the stat, what does the statue say? Well, and this is the thing. What is the narrative being told by the continue, you know, Thomas Jefferson is a complicated figure. And we're going to get into his complicatedness as we move forward in the film. Yep. Um, <laughs> So that is all started with the white shadow. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, also a president of SAG down the road. Yeah, uh, that's Ken right. Howard. That's yep. crazy. Yeah. As we're doing our little weather thing in Watts walks a soldier. Great introduction to this guy. And uh, he will have an incredibly poignant song to sing later. But it's a reminder that there is a war going on for all their battles inside the Congress. There's a real war happening that they have to address. And this soldier comes in, and this is this thing that's this motif, essentially, that's going to happen over and over again. He delivers in this completely uninterested way a letter from George Washington, which is going to be read by the Secretary of the Congress, which I think is Mr. Taylor. Mr. Thompson. Mr. Thompson. Thompson. And these letters are depressing and sad and critical (laughs) and just basically saying we are doomed and Mm -hmm. we need your help. Yeah. All of which is 100% true. That is exactly what was going on in New York at the time. The, the British armies were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the fleets were getting bigger, and he had no money, he had no ammunition. They were training um, some of their soldiers to fight with spears. Oh, my God. Because they had no ammo. Wow. And we meet some of our other delegates, including one which is named Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire, which is yep. Jed Bartlett. That's his name in the West Wing. That's where that comes from. <laughs> um, and we're talking about some other resolutions that aren't important. And then we yell fire wagon and everyone rushes outside, which is so odd to see so where the fire random. is. It's Real- so random. It's really weird. Yeah. And then this is the moment that up comes Richard Lee. <laughs> and he's done it. He's done. Done by certain Lee. Mr. President, I return from Virginia with the following resolution. Resolved that these United Colonies are, and never are not to be, 
free and independent states, that they are absolved from our allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is, and not to be, totally dissolved. And I love, by the way, he does a couple more of these, like, uses the word Lee separated, yeah. his name, and you have Ben Franklin, who's just waiting for them. <laughs> Why, certain Lee. <laughs> That's very funny. Mr. President. Pennsylvania moves, as always, that the question of independence be postponed indefinitely. I second the motion. Can't second your own colonies <laughs> motion. Delaware seconds it. Now we see there's a big board, and on the board is a slider for all the colonies that go over yeah. to the yay column or the nay column. Right. And we go down our list of people. Rhode Island, which is our drunk guy, is visiting the necessary. Rhode Island passes. <laughs> <laughs> which everyone laughs. New York abstains. Courteously. Uh, which is true. They, New York did abstain throughout the entire Continental Congress. Yeah. New Jersey, still missing. Pennsylvania says nay. And then we get to Chase, and Chase is the representative from Maryland, and he says... Maryland would welcome independence if it were given, but is highly skeptical that it can be taken. Maryland says nay. So the Maryland, and this is what we're going to establish, is there are a bunch of colonies that are going to vote against independence and each of them has different reasons. And so Maryland's reason is that we don't believe that the war can be won. Yeah. And that's so Adams and our crew are going to have to solve each of these problems as we yep. go along in the film. Yep. Virginia says yes. And then we hear that North Carolina again yields to South Carolina. Um, they're always going to do what South Carolina does, which is not true in history. And South Carolina says, If at some future date it becomes the wish of all our sister colonies to effect a separation, we will not stand in the way. But for the time being, South Carolina will wait and watch. The vote is made. Again, we're kind of setting up a little bit of what has to happen with them. And now it's time for Georgia. And this is Dr. Hall. And everyone turns to look at him because he's going to be one of the key people. And he says, Mr. President, Georgia seems to be split right down the middle on this issue. The people are against it and I'm for it. <laughs> However, I'm afraid I'm not quite certain whether representing the people means relying on their judgment or on my own. In all fairness, until I can figure that out, I'd better lean a little on their side. Georgia says nay. And immediately, that's a, such a dignified response that you're you're just immediately in this guy's corner, right? You're just like, exactly. this is such a smart response and such a careful response and a, and a caring response that you're just like, okay, I like this guy. Um, and in comes Rhode Island, who complains that the Congress should have its own pisser. And, <laughs> and he votes yay, and, which means that they've won. They have they've failed at the postponement, and so we're going to have our discussion. Um, and th this is what I was going to say before. When we talk about this is such a long break without music. Yeah. This sequence is like, it's like 12 Angry Men. Mm. It is a all in one Great room. Points. Great points. Political debate with a lot of characters back and forth over a lot of ideas. It is a totally classic American style of play. Yeah. Put in the middle of a musical. Well, now, I confess I'm almost relieved. Well, there's a question I've been fairly itching to ask you. Why? Why what, Mr. Dickinson? Well, why independence, Mr. Adams? And now we get to hear the reasons. Well, for the obvious reason that our continued association with Great Britain has grown intolerable. Well, to whom, Mr. Adams? To you? 
Well, then I suggest you sever your ties immediately. But please be kind enough to leave the rest of us where we are. For myself, I have no objection at all to being part of the greatest empire on Earth, to enjoying its protection and sharing its benefits. And now Adams goes off. What benefits? Crippling taxes? Cruel repressions? Abolished rights? Is that all England means to you, sir? Is that all the pride and affection you can muster for the nation that bore you? Would you forsake Hastings, Magna Carta, and then Dickinson goes off on a yeah. huge list of, you know, everything from King Arthur to I don't even know what they all are. <laughs> Whole bunch of stuff on what English is great for. And we see Franklin, who is sleeping, which mm-hmm. he did often apparently sleep. He also apparently Franklin used sleeping as a technique. So, so sometimes he was asleep. <laughs> genuinely, sometimes uh-huh. he present, pretended to be asleep so that he could wake up at an opportune moment and throw something in. Franklin's obviously one of the most interesting men in American history. Yes. Some men are patriots, like General Washington. And some are anarchists, like Mr. Payne. Some even are internationalists, like Dr. Franklin. But you, sir, you are merely an agitator. He attacks him in the context of the film, obviously. The one thing he takes most pride in, but maybe the one thing that he could mess with his insecurity about is this idea mm-hmm. of these are all great men and he's in essence, in essence saying you're nothing but an agitator you're a yeah. you're a protester you're not even a senator in my mind you're a protester and if we uh, connect it to today you're a guy walking around with a black lives matter shirt this is a senator you're just a protester an agitator you don't even belong here and maybe that's a way to show like Adams has this blue collar, like you said, blue collar background, doesn't come from much money, cutting down trees, reading at night. He's a self-educated man in a lot of ways and has found himself in this Congress. Here's someone from money like Dickinson. Here's someone from old money, from an aristocracy, an American aristocracy, so to speak. And he uh, immediately sh- uh, cuts, tries to cut him down uh, at where that maybe that uh, thing about him that he can be most insulted by, which is his intelligence, his demeanor his status. It's a hard shot. It's a couple of hard shots that he takes. So there's a strong class structure within this movie. Yes. You know, and Adams is definitely on one side of it, that he is not one of these elegant, wealthy, moneyed people. If you have grievances, and I'm sure you have, our present system must provide a gentler means of addressing them, short of revolution, violence, rebellion, treason. And isn't this what we're hearing from people who are mad at the Black Lives Matter protests. Why don't you do it like they do it? And we talked about it with the Bruce Lee review that we did recently, mm-hmm. Steve, on my channel about Be Water. Why don't you protest like the Asians protest? Why can't you be quiet and respectful and demure? This idea of saying, well, there's another avenue that you can take. And the whole time, the intention is to delay, delay, delay to put you off, to make you jump even through more hoops because you aren't protesting in the way that I can handle your protest. I feel that there, but those avenues that were set up are systematically against the idea of being able to change, being able to protest and are purposely uh, uh, clogged with red tape. So by the time you get to anywhere, it's too late for anything. And so his proposal of it is from such a place of, I don't know, dismissiveness, uh, about it and true hatred of it, it seems like. 
Well, this is the crux of, of this is what revolution is about. And this is why this story of this moment is so important, is that the idea of good government is that we create a system in which you can address your problems, yeah. whether that's through the courts or through the legal system, is that there is a person you can apply to. And the idea is that that stuff is fair. And of course, we all know it's never going to be perfectly fair, but there is a level when it becomes too unfair, when the system becomes yeah. unsurmountably unfair, yeah. that you must work outside of the system. But mm-hmm. what moment we do that is very hard to determine. And yeah. what they're saying at this moment, this is why the phrase taxation without representation, it's like, well, if I can't talk to you about what's happening to me, that system is unfair. Yeah. And then in our country right now, you go like, well, if the vote was fair, well, then they should be able to address these grievances. Yep. If the vote is not fair, then they can't. If the, It's essentially a question of representation. And the hard thing is, is from the people within the system, they look at the people that are breaking the rules of the system and they go, no, no, we have a system. It works. Yeah. It's always worked for me. Yeah. It's always worked for me. What's your problem? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and this is the thing too, to be part of a civil society, there are times where you're going to lose is that there are times where I lost that election. Yeah. And so that the decision that I firmly believe is right is not going to happen. And in a civil society, we need to abide by that decision. Like yeah. one of the great moments in American history in this way, I think, is Al Gore presiding over Congress to elect George W. Bush. Yeah. It's the last step in electing the president is it has to be done by Congress. And Al Gore, as the vice president under Clinton, presides over that meeting. And so even though he might say this is wrong and I think I should be president, he believes that the institution is more important than his personal winning. He does not rebel. And at this moment, John Adams is saying the system's not fair. It's never going to be fair. Our only reasonable choice is to rebel. Are these the acts of Englishmen? Not Englishmen, Dickinson. American. No, sir. Englishman. Please, Mr. Dickinson, must you start banging? How is a man to sleep? <laughs> I love Dickinson's response here. Forgive me, Dr. Franklin, but must you start speaking? How is a man to stay awake? <laughs> and there's a good laugh. And we get into just Franklin like being called an Englishman. Now, what's so terrible about being called an Englishman? The English don't seem to mind. Nor would I, were I given the full rights of an Englishman. But to call me one without those rights is like calling an ox a bull. He's thankful for the honor, but he'd much rather have restored what's rightfully his. That is a great line. It is a great line. And it echoes into how many struggles in our country's history or other countries' histories of people who are being called citizens or even Americans, but don't get the full rights that other Americans get. Don't get the same benefits that other Americans get. Uh, and there was within the, I think within the civil rights uh, movement, I, I, I remember there were people who were said, don't call me an American. I'm not an American because I don't receive the benefits that Americans receive. You know, I don't have the basic benefits that Americans receive. And so this is, this is a, a comment that works on a number of levels, you know? And by the way, Dickinson has a great comeback, which is when did you first notice they were missing? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Referring to the ox versus the bull. (laughs) Yeah. And Ben seeds the point as any good uh, uh, ball buster would. Yeah. (laughs) Literally in this case, (laughs) literal ball buster. 
And we continue this discussion about whether or not we want to split off from this country, whether or not we have the right to rebel. And Franklin says something really interesting. Never was such a valuable possession so stupidly and so recklessly managed in this entire continent by the British crown. Our industry discouraged, our resources pillaged. Worst of all, our very character stifled. We've spawned a new race here, Mr. Dickinson. Rougher, simpler, more violent, more enterprising, less refined. We're a new nationality. We require a new nation. Adams comes after Dickinson and says, what do you know of the people? You don't speak for the people. You represent only yourself. Use the people to preserve your own property. Once again, and this is what's interesting, Steve. We started this conversation about the movie with Jack Warner, this idea that this could be an old school musical. It's Vietnam. Maybe this was made for the silent majority. But within this film, there are subversive shots at the establishment of America by someone like John Adams, who in essence could be a Vietnam protest or protester protest in Vietnam War out there saying to someone who is in the Congress and seems to be highfalutin' and condescending, uh, what do you, uh, when he says the people, right? What do you know about the people? When's the last time you were the people when you show up in that flowery carriage to come to Congress? What do you know about the people? And we see this all the time now in our political rhetoric, don't we, Steve? The people think, the people are not going to be fooled. The people believe and every congressman, every senator thinks they speak for the American people, which well, is absolutely ridiculous and ludicrous. My opinion is, is a more powerful statement to me than the people believe, which is a, a naked, uh, disgusting, uh, a completely untrue pandering that, that frustrates me when I hear it. And I don't care what side of the political spectrum. And I mean, this, again, could be right out of today because it's yes. an argument between the rights of the people and the rights of property. Right. And Dickinson's response is, what's wrong? What's wrong with property? Mr. Adams, you have an annoying talent for making such delightful words as property sound quite distasteful. Perhaps you've forgotten that many of us first came to these shores in order to secure rights to property. And the fact that some of us have flourished that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's what we're here for. Because of what you said, Steve, here earlier. Also, the other reason people came to this country was to break away mm -hmm. from a tyrannical king who was trying to control what they could do and keep them uh, down in the lower class, keep them poor, keep them as working class to help the rich stay rich. And that's what Adams is fighting back on. So yeah, it echoes into our time even now and certainly echoed at that time for what was going on uh, in the protests uh, at that time in America as well. Well, and this is, and again, we're getting get into Dickinson's strategy because his strategy is to make this Adams yeah. in, in movement of independence, yeah. not the countries. It's all about, he wants to bond it to John Adams. This proposal is entirely his doing. Oh, it may bear Virginia's name, but it reeks of Adams, Adams, and more Adams. Look at him ready to lead this continent down the fiery path of total destruction. Oh, good God, why can't you acknowledge what already exists? And John Adams, and I think completely rightfully so, kind of wigs out on in this moment because it's like, no, we're already at war. It has been more than a year since Concord and Lexington. Damn it, man, we're at war right now. You may be at war. You, Boston and John Adams. This is, by the way, the point of where I was writing my notes where I wrote, Man, this is a long scene. <laughs> <laughs> What's so funny is it's still got a long way to go. Yeah. 
Um, and now uh, Rutledge from South Carolina has, well, who's going to govern? The people, of course. Which people, sir? The people of South Carolina or the people of Massachusetts? Ah, oh, why don't you admit it, Nettie? You're against independence now and you always will be. You refuse to understand us. We desire independence. Yes. For South Carolina, that is our country. Which is, of course, the, the states' rights issue being thrown right into this. 100%. Remember when Robert E. Lee says, I can't turn against my country? Meaning yeah. Virginia. He meant Virginia, yeah. As such, we don't wish it to belong to anyone. Not to England. Not to you. We intend to have one nation, Rutledge. A nation of sovereign states, Mr. Adams. United for our mutual protection, but separate for our individual pursuits. Now, that is what we have understood it to be. Which is what we're going to have. That's going to be the Articles of Confederation, which is the first government of our country. Yep. By the way, one of the main authors of the Articles of Confederation is Dickinson, <laughs> the representative of Pennsylvania. How ironic. Gentlemen, please, what in God's name is the infernal hurry? Why must this question be settled now? What's wrong with now, Mr. Chase? General Washington is in the field. If he's defeated, as it now appears, we'll be inviting the hangman. But if, by some miracle, he should actually win, we can then declare anything we damn please. The sentiments of North Carolina precisely. Has it ever occurred to either of you that an army needs something to fight for in order to win? A purpose, a goal, a flag of its own? Mr. Adams, how can a nation of only two million souls stand up to an empire of ten million? And Adams' response is spirit. There's a spirit out there among the people that is sadly lacking in this Congress. I think that's a ridiculous statement. I think the question, I think the, I mean, there might be a spirit, but the question of how the hell are we going to fight Great Britain is a perfectly reasonable question that sure. should be asked. Um, by the way, uh, Adams was in charge of the War Committee, in charge of the Naval Committee. He was the biggest advocate for building our army. You and your Pennsylvania proprietors, oh, you cool, considerate men. You hang to the rear on every issue so that if we should go under, you'll still remain afloat. Are you calling me a coward? Yes, coward! Madman! Landlord! Lawyer! And then they go and fight. Yeah, cane to cane. Like something we've seen in other governments over mm -hmm. the last few years, people fighting physically with each other uh, in their uh, respective voting bodies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This never happened. Um, <laughs> of course it never happened. The, well, the funniest thing, the, what's the final <laughs> insult that causes them to fight? Is it lawyer? Yes, no. lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Dickinson's a lawyer. They're both lawyers. All right, they're both lawyers. Oh. <laughs> I they, love it. They stop the fight, someone fires a gun, and then we hear Caesar Rodney say, This is the Congress. Stop it, I say. The enemy's out there. No, Mr. Rodney, the enemy is here. No, I say he's out there. England, England closing in, cutting off our air. There's no time. No air. You could see he's, that's taken so much of his strength because he's yeah. so ill. And the doctor rushes out. And, and that really is what sort of changes the conversation. Yeah. And we decide that he's got to go, Caesar Rodney's got to go home because of his cancer. Um, and they take him out. And there's like a slow walk with a drumbeat that is very dramatic. Yeah. And then my note here is, no, seriously, this is a really long scene. 
<laughs> and now South Carolina says, let's end the debate. Let's vote. Franklin, do something. Think. I'm thinking, but nothing's coming. All those in favor of the resolution on independence is proposed by the colony of Virginia, signify by saying... Mr. Secretary, would you please read the resolution again? What? I've forgotten it. <laughs> and they start reading again, and now the door opens, and in walks this group of people. <laughs> Excuse me, is, is this the Continental Congress? Well, yes, I, I can see that it must be. Uh, it's all right, we found it. Excuse me, sir, but uh, if you don't mind, the... Uh... Congress is about to decide the question of American independence. Oh, how splendid. That means we're not too late. And they're like, oh, we're the, we're the, we're the delegates from New Jersey. Quickly, man, where do you stand on independence? Well, haven't I made that clear? No. Well, I, I suppose I hadn't, but that's the reason for the change. See, we've been instructed to vote for independence. And then all of a sudden, Adams is all about it. <laughs> yeah. And then Pennsylvania moves that the vote on independence must be unanimous. And this is the moment in the movie where, like, if you're a kid and you're watching this, you're like, oh, you know, the bad guy. But then when you get older, you're like, yeah, this makes all the sense in the world. Maybe the, the only thing I agree with Dickinson on in this movie is this idea that what he says uh, in a couple of minutes, this idea that... Um, Every state should be able to decide for itself if it wants to be independent. And absolutely, it should be unanimous because if you're going to rip someone away from their mother country, they should have a say in it. Well, and Adams is outraged. Yes. And the deciding vote essentially is John Hancock, who's the president of the Congress, right. but also a representative from Massachusetts. Good God, John, what are you doing? You've sunk up. Now hear me out. Don't you see that any colony who opposes independence will be forced to fight on the side of England? That we'll be setting brother against brother that our new nation will carry as its emblem the mark of Cain. I can see no other way. Either we all walk together or together we must stay where we are. 100% agree. Absolutely right. And then they start to, to read the thing again and again. And now Adams interrupts and Thompson's like, for heaven's sake, let me get through it once. <laughs> and now oh. he moves for post postponement. Yeah. And Dickinson goes, well, I hope you have better luck than me. And it's so funny because just a moment ago, Dickinson was trying to postpone it. And Adams yeah. was against postponement. Now Adams is trying to postpone. Mr. Adams is right. We need a postponement. On what grounds? On what grounds? Mr. President, how can this Congress vote on independence without a written declaration of uh, some sort uh, defining it? Because we got to do a, uh, a declaration. Yeah, yeah we yeah. got to write it. Uh, that's the so. ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and, they're, and they're trying to come up with reasons and they're not doing a very good job. And then Thomas Jefferson stands up. He said, and everyone stops because yeah. this guy hasn't talked solid Bob. And, and by the way this is really true thomas jefferson rarely spoke in congress he was extremely quiet and he would and, and it's so interesting that he became such an important statesman because he didn't want to assert himself he didn't like conflict but he was a very important voice in the congress when he did speak and he says to place before mankind the common sense of the subject in terms so plain and firm as to command their assent. And there's a long pause. And then Thomas Jefferson looks over at John Adams and winks. <laughs> Apparently he did the wink in the Broadway play. Oh. And this whole thing is Ken Howard's big break, by uh -huh. the way. Right. And, and when they're doing it in rehearsals, 
the, the, the bunch of people is like, like we're on a Broadway stage. No one is going to see this wink. <laughs> he got a huge laugh every night. Wow. And it's amazing. I'm sure you've seen this in play where some really small thing, you just laser focus on it for some reason. If you've got their attention, people will notice the smallest of gestures. Yes. Mr. Jefferson, are you seriously suggesting that we publish a paper declaring to all the world that an illegal rebellion is in reality a legal one? Oh, Mr. Dickinson, I'm surprised at you. You should know that rebellion is always legal in the first person, such as our rebellion. There's only in the third person, their rebellion, that it is illegal. <laughs> Great. And again, it's a tie. New York abstains. Curiously. <laughs> and, and now Hancock's starting to get pissed off. Like, what's going on with New York? <laughs> and uh, the representative of New York, who's, by the way, his name, Morris, um, he says, which is a fine name, no relation. Um, <laughs> my family was not in this country at that time. Oh, okay. um, but he says the legislature didn't give us any instructions, which is true. They yeah. sent delegates to the Continental Congress with no instructions. <laughs> And so we can't really do anything. And uh, Hancock says, never? That's impossible. And Morris says, Mr. President, have you ever been present at a meeting of the New York legislature? They speak very fast and very loud, and nobody listens to anybody else, with the result that nothing ever gets done. I shot at New York, and I shot at New York in the seventies. There. <laughs> well, we even had we even had New Jersey jokes. Mm-hmm. Like New Jersey jokes have been going on <laughs> apparently Please. all of history since the dawn of the country. <laughs> it's one where some of the most amazing people in America came from New Jersey, including my wife and John Bon Jovi and John Bon Jovi and the boss <laughs> and the boss and John Stewart. I mean, like the, and I mean, uh, and Frank it's, Sinatra. It's endless Sinatra. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, but enough about New Jersey. <laughs> this is going to be like the longest podcast ever. <laughs> What's going to be so funny, this is a movie that nobody's seen. Like, <laughs> my, my prediction is almost none of our fans have seen. It's going to come on two parts. It's going to be like six hours long. How dare you? <laughs> um, and now we decide like, okay, we're going to write this de- so-called Declaration of Independence, or sometimes they say independency. Yeah. And so we got to make a committee including, of course, Adams and Franklin, and there's Sherman, and there's, I forget the other guy's name, and then we say, oh, well, let's have uh, Lee be on it. And he goes, no, I'm heading home. I can't do it. (laughs) And then they- got to refresh the missus. (laughs) And they they got to refresh the missus again. Therefore, I must decline a respectful Lee. And then they nominate uh, Thomas Jefferson. Adams nominates Thomas Jefferson, and it goes real fast. And Jefferson goes, no, no, I'm going home to see my wife. I haven't seen her in six months. And it's like, move to adjourn. Wait. I second. Mr. Hancock, I haven't seen her for six months. Move down, second. Any objections? I have objections. I have lots of objections. No, Thomas, thank you. John, I need to see my wife. And now we're outside, and for some reason, Adams is up on this balcony, and he says... All right, gentlemen, let's get on with it. Which of us will write our Declaration of Independence? And now, finally, we have a song again. (laughs) By the way, this break was so long that the musicians in the orchestra pit were allowed to get up and leave. Wow! Which apparently had never happened, according to these people, in a musical before. That's rare. (laughs) Because it's 30 minutes, so they went out to the bar and had a beer, and then they would come back in to do this song. And now we have the song, But Mr. Adams, which again, it's like, this This song kind of reminded me like of, like a Kiss Me Kate song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like just old fashioned, cute musical. Yep. And it is structured with each one of them trying to pawn off 
who's going to write the declaration symbolized by a quill pen that they just keep handing around to each other. <laughs> and, and we have the refrain of you're obnoxious and you're, you're obnoxious and dislike, you know, that's true. Yes, I do. Mr. Adams, I say you should write it. To your legal mind and brilliance, we defer. Is that so? Well, if I'm the one to do it, they'll run their quill pens through it. I'm obnoxious and disliked. You know that, sir? Yes, I know. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> and then, and then it's it, you know, it's just classic old musical theater stuff where each one of them has their reason, and then their reason becomes the rhyme that gets rhymed and then repeated. Mr. Adams, but Mr. Adams. The things I write are only light extemporanea. I won't put politics on paper. It's a mania. So I refuse to use the pen in Pennsylvania. 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 (laughs) And that's what we're going to repeat. So that's that's Franklin's. And then Sherman uh, says he's not a good writer. I cannot write with any style or proper etiquette. I don't know a participle from a predicate. I am just a simple cobbler from Connecticut. From Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> Connecticut. Yeah. And then Mr. Livingston. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and he says, I've been presented with a new son by the noble stork. So I'm going home to celebrate and pop the cork with all the Livingstons together back in old New York. New York. <laughs> New York. <laughs> Livingston's going to pop a cork. And it's yeah. very cute, the little dance numbers. By the way, the choreographer is Ona White. Ona White has the distinction of being the only choreographer, as far as I know, to win an Oscar. She won a special Oscar for being the choreographer for Oliver, which I know, I, that one I know I saw. I have no memory of it. I, yeah, watched, never it a bunch, I watched it a bunch as a kid. I have no memory of it. Um, and now we get to, of course, who we've been waiting to get to, which is Mr. Jefferson. And... And there's a lot of funny things in this. And, and, and first of all, it starts because we turn to Mr. Jefferson and Ken Howard sings this weird note that just goes, it's so odd sounding. Mr. Adams, leave me alone. <laughs> you know, it's so... And then they go quiet. And then they go, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, they underplay it, which is great. Yeah. And we solemnly declare that we will preserve our liberties, being with one mind resolved to die free men rather than to live slaves. Thomas Jefferson, on the necessity of taking up arms, 1775, magnificent. And they're standing next to each other, and Ken Howard is a giant. Yes, he is. Six foot six and three quarters. Yeah. William Daniels is five seven. John Adams was also 5'7". Oh, wow. Uh, And Jefferson was 6'2". I had to look it up. Okay. Um, But he's towering over Adams, and he says, Now then, sir, will you be a patriot or a lover? A lover. No. But I burn, Mr. A. So do I, Mr. J. And they're all shocked. Like, John, who'd have thought it? And then, and then Adams gets his own. He's like, Mr. Jefferson, dear Mr. Jefferson. I'm only 41. I still have my virility. And I can romp through Cupid's Grove with great agility. Yeah, there's a little minuet, so to speak. Yep. But life is more than sexual combustibility. Combustibility. <laughs> I think it's quiet. Now you'll write it, Mr. J. Who will make me, Mr. A? I. You? Yes. 
and they're on the same step. And Jefferson says, how? <laughs> and, then, and then, you know, begrudgingly or even like hesitantly, he says, by physical force, if necessary. And then he appeals to him yeah. in the moment uh, to his sensibilities and his honor. And he says, it's your duty, damn it. Your duty. Mr. Adams. Damn you, Mr. Adams. You're obnoxious and disliked. That cannot be denied. Once again, you stand between me and my lovely bride. Oh, Mr. Adams, you are driving me to homicide. Jefferson, of course, they join in again. And what's interesting, so in all my research on the history, this, in fact, is exactly how the uh, Declaration of Independence was written. This song? This song. Did it really did. Yeah. <laughs> now, so was he, was he like, had to be forced to do it? Is that no. what you mean? No, not at all. No, he wanted no. to do it. Right? He, he wanted to do it. And uh, he did want to go home, sure. um, not because he was horny, but because his wife was ill. Ah, yeah. So yeah. Martha Jefferson had just had a miscarriage, oh. and she was quite ill, and uh, he did want to go home, but no, he wanted to write, and Adams wanted to, him to write it from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So, so not historically accurate, but a very, very fun song. And I think as Thomas Jefferson goes off to write one of the greatest documents in American history, I think it's time for us to end what is probably one of the great cinephiles episodes in American history, our deep, complicated, and somewhat meandering exploration of the musical 1776. Yes. Um, of course, we'd love to hear what you think of this film. My guess is this might be a new film for a lot of you, and it's always interesting to hear how you react to this film. And this one in particular, just that I had a strange reaction to it from watching it at this moment in time. I'd be very curious to hear what your reaction is, how this relates to your feelings about our founding fathers, and maybe those feelings are changing as we speak. We'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts. Visit us on Facebook at The Cinephiles. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can subscribe to it on Spotify, on YouTube, on Stitcher, on Google Play. We really need those reviews on iTunes. We haven't had yeah. one in a while. It's been a long time. And the longer it goes between reviews, the harder our podcast gets to find. Yep. Uh, leave your comments on YouTube. If you want to buy or stream 1776, you can do so through our website, cinephiles.net. We get a few pennies off of every time someone does that. If you want to support the show, you can do it on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to follow me, you can do it at SR Morris on Twitter, on SR Morris one on Instagram. Cinephiles, you can follow at Cine underscore files on Twitter, uh, the Cinephiles podcast on Instagram. John, if someone wanted to follow you, how would they do that? Uh, you can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram, and you can uh, subscribe to the chat, my, my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash John Roca says. We see a bunch of content there for you to enjoy from the world of entertainment, sports, and professional wrestling. Uh, and coming soon, a possibly new po uh, politics podcast that I've been kicking around uh, with a possible co-host as well. And if it does happen, I'm certain to have Steve Morris on as much as he can. All right. So, you know, yeah. I always want to come and talk about that stuff. That's um, so I think that is it for this week. We will see you next time to find out if the colonies actually rebel from Great Britain as we <laughs> conclude our exploration of 1776 on the cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>